0: As we said before, as I said before, it uh, it was a great blessing uh, and I'm very thankful to God for the ministry at EU when I was here as an undergraduate, not just in the way I became a Christian, but in the way it was a place where I was helped to think about what it meant to live for the Lord Jesus. And it was a place where I really learned how to understand and read the Bible for myself. I hope as we look look at Exodus in the next four weeks, you're going to be challenged and shaped, and uh, reshaped, and you're thinking about what it means to be a Christian, and who you are by God's word, but well, I hope as well that are going to get some skills in how to read the Old Testament, how to read the book of Exodus for yourself. We won't be reading the whole lot, so I don't know if Phil's worried about that, we're in two chapters today, but uh, in the bits we read, I hope you'll get the skills to go back and maybe even fill in the blanks for yourself later on. Three things are going to help you. One will be to have your Bible open, everybody with me. The other thing we have your outline open. You might just have some chance of following where I'm going and where we're up to. And the third thing is we need to ask God to help us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to pray and ask for your help, uh, your Spirit's work within each one of us as we come together today. We pray that uh, you would help us as we read this strange Old Testament book of Exodus, these events that uh, seem to have happened so long ago that you would help us to see what they mean and say to us as your people today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever come home, turn the telling on in the middle of a movie, and for the life of you, you can't work out what's going on? Who's in love with who, who it is, who's shot who? Sometimes a movie can end and I'm still... None the wiser about what's really gone on. Just as soon as I kind of work out that it must be her boyfriend who's been killed, he then appears in a (coughs) scene. To tune into a story in the middle, you can run the risk of being confused or even being completely misunderstanding what's going on. As we begin looking at the book of Exodus in the next four weeks, that is the great danger for us. As we start asking, I trouble can do that. You just want to take it off. But a bit small. Why does he yell? Can you hear me if I talk like that? You tell me if I start start going soft on you. <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as we start looking at the book, book of Exodus, that is the great danger for us. You see, the Bible from start to finish, like a movie, is a single story moving from creation. To Jesus, the the event that everything in the story finds its fulfillment in. And we can get at the book of Exodus, but today we could be completely confused, get the whole thing wrong, if we just jump in and pick up the story in the middle. So, just for a moment, I want, before we begin looking at the book of Exodus, to spend a couple of minutes thinking about what has happened so far in the story. In the beginning, God made the world. He made a magnificent world and a special place, a garden in the midst of that world, where everything was good, where he put a man and a woman to not just enjoy his world, but enjoy knowing him. And what happens? you with me so far in the story? They reject it, don't they? They say no to God and his loving intentions for him. And they rebel against their creator and how he calls them to live. And all that is good about God's world begins to unravel. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, no longer in relationship with God. And into a world of pain and (coughs) suffering, of broken relationships, of sin and death. The world that we know only too well. I don't know if you know the uh, early chapters of Genesis. Have you ever thought, has it ever occurred to you, that could have been the end of the story? You see, God was under no obligation. His good world in tatters. His love rejected. He had every right just to screw the whole thing up and throw it in the bin. But He didn't. Instead, He made a promise. In Genesis chapter 12, in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 12, to a bloke named Abraham. As the effects of sin in God's world are snowballing out of control, in Genesis 12 to Abraham, God makes a commitment, a promise to in fact undo all that was lost by Adam and Eve. And here's where you get to the fill in the blank bit on your outline. He unveiled a plan in that promise in three parts. He promised Abraham, once again, God would live with a human beings in a place of paradise, a new garden, <coughs> the land of Palestine, the Old Testament promised land. But God promised Abraham even more than that, that his own descendants, his family, would be that special people, just as Adam and Eve lived in, in, with God in Eden. In fact, Abraham's descendants will grow and become exceedingly numerous and will be a great nation living with God in their midst. And finally in Genesis 12, the third part of the promise. (coughs) Through Abraham's people, through his family tree, God will somehow bless all the nations. Not just for them, but on a worldwide scale, bring blessings. And restore what was lost at Eden. But if you know the story, as the book of Genesis unfolds, you keep wondering, is God really serious about this promise? I mean, what about the bit about many descendants? The years roll on and Abraham and, and his wife have no children. I me mean, tell you, it's a bit hard to be a great nation if you can't even manage to have one kid. At one point, Abraham's wife, Sarah, laughs. She scoffs at the very idea that God could now keep this promise. They have grown old and nothing has happened. Well, eventually they do have a son. But yet all the way through Genesis, the pattern continues. Abraham's family line just hangs on by the thinnest of threads. That only son is almost killed by his father, Abraham. And then his son, Jacob, is almost killed by his uncle and his brother. In fact, almost anyone who gets to meet Jacob wants to kill him. He's that kind of guy. In fact, by the time you reach the end of the book of Genesis, if you want to just turn back one page from where Exodus starts or look across the page of your Bibles like mine, even at the end of Genesis, hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants are still just a handful. And of all places, they are now in Egypt, further from the promised land than ever. In fact, if you look at chapter 50, verse 24, last few words of the book of Genesis, it ends with Abraham's family watching and waiting, still longing for this promise to begin becoming reality. Joseph on his deathbed says, I'm about to die. But surely what God will come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So when Exodus begins, if we know the story, the thing we should be asking, the question that ought to be on our lips, is God going to now keep his promise? When is he going to get around to it? Or has he completely forgotten? And with that in mind, look again at how the book of Exodus begins. These are the names of, and it begins a roll call, of Abraham's descendants. Maybe as we read it before, you were thinking, this isn't a particularly gripping way way to open a book with a long list of unpronounceable names. But if you know the Genesis story, if you read it with the promise in mind, if you read it longing that God might keep his promise and deal with the great problem in our world, bring in his promise paradise, well, this is an opening to keep you on the edge of your sleep. Even more than that, straight after the names, if you look in verses, verses 6 and 7, in the very Genesis language of God's promise to Abraham, we're told that they became fruitful and multiplied, exceedingly numerous. In fact, the land is filled with them. They're starting to become, or sound to become, like a great people. Finally, it seems God's promises are about to begin to take shape. But then all our hopes are dashed in verse 8. The writer tells us a new king arrives in Egypt who did not know about Joseph. And suddenly their fortunes change. The very sign of God's blessing, the great number of the Israelites, Pharaoh sees as a threat. Now please understand Pharaoh's mind. Understand the dilemma he has. He can't let the Israelites go. He needs them as his workforce. But he fears them if they stay. And so he enslaves them. The Israelites have been invited to Egypt as honoured guests but are now slapped in iron iron to made prisoners to do back-breaking labour. You see, it's not like the asylum seekers in Australia, whatever you might think about that issue. The Israelites have been invited to come. Or it's a bit like, you know, if you go to a special, you know, surprise birthday in your honour, and then you find yourself handcuffed to the sink after everyone else goes home. (laughs) And listen to the language in verse 14 that the Egyptians made their life bitter with hard labour in bricks and mortar. And in all their hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. But it doesn't stop there. Can you still hear me at the back? Okay, not going to sleep? In verse 15, if you look, Pharaoh is so set against the descendants of Abraham (laughs) to stop them increasing. He orders that the midwives murder every Israelite boy when it is born. (coughs) And when that doesn't work, he orders that the parents themselves, that every baby boy be thrown into the Nile. And it's not for <coughs> siblings. He is forcing parents to drown their <coughs> own children. Now, if you were an Israelite living in Egypt, what would you be thinking? What would you be thinking? As you woke each morning in a foreign land to see your family in chains, if you woke each day to the prospect of more back-breaking labour, as your frog marched down to the river by the guards to throw your baby boy into the deep, well, where is God and His promise? A great nation living in a promised land—surely between ruthless slavery murdering the maternity ward, drowning in the Nile. God's promise must have seemed a long way away. But chapter 2 begins with a faint note of hope, if you look at the way way chapter 2 opens in the first verse. From the plight of the Israelites as a whole, the camera, if you like, zooms in on one family. In fact, the birth of a particular child of Abraham, an Israelite boy, named Moses and the way the story follows him I think we're supposed to wonder hey is this the one through whom God will actually begin to keep his promise and the hints keep coming even though he is raised in the palace he never forgets who he is he has a love and a loyalty for his people in chapter 2 verse 11 when he sees an Israelite mistreated his blood boils and he kills the Egyptian overseer is this the rescuer who might one day take on Pharaoh himself and rescue his people. But for all the hints of hope, by the end of chapter 2, well, where's Moses? He's not confronting Pharaoh. He's run off with his tail between his legs. It doesn't look like he's coming back soon, does it? And the story tells us, far off in the land of Tyre, he meets a girl, he gets married, kids come along, Joins his father-in-law's business and he's settled down to suburban mediocrity, hasn't he? He's put on a bit of weight in the middle. He's turned the radio from Triple J to John Laws. (laughs) He just hasn't got great Old Testament deliverer. Risks all to come back and take on Pharaoh. It just doesn't seem like that, does it? He seems content to spend his days minding sheep but just when things are perhaps at their bleakest God's promise at its faintest just when even the flicker of hope with Moses seems about to go out chapter 2 ends with the words look in verse 24 God then heard their groaning and remembered his promise his covenant with Abraham Isaac and Jacob in fact, next week we'll see that as chapter 3, three opens, a bush bursts into flame, and a stammering Moses finds himself in the very presence of the living God. And from the bush, God will begin, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Now, introduce yourself that way. It seems a bit long-winded, doesn't it? We're saying, I am the God of the promise. The promise to Abraham and his family life. To Isaac and Jacob. That promise has not died. God has not forgotten. That's not what it means when it says that he remembered. On the contrary, God reveals to Moses his plan to lead his people from slavery to a promised land flowing with milk and honey to live in a new garden of Eden where nothing will be in want. And so we'll go on the book of Exodus. But at this point, I think it's even worth noticing that even in these first two dark chapters, there are clues all the way along that God has not forgotten his promise, that he is still in charge. Even in the blackest moments, in fact, I actually think in chapter 1 and 2, there's actually some humour in the way that it's done. And all the laughs are on Pharaoh. In the book of Exodus, something we'll see is that for those who want to stand in God's way, in the way of his plans, he often has a way of making it look pretty foolish. And in chapter 1 and chapter 2, all Pharaoh's plans seem to backfire really badly on him. If you look at verse 12, it actually reminds me of the cockroaches in my kitchen. The more Pharaoh tries to oppress the Israelites and get rid of them, the more they just seem to increase and be everywhere. Everything he tries. But his idea to enlist the midwives to kill the baby boys, not only is he fooled, by their weakest water explanation, the babies come too quick. It, as a, it's an international standard, lame excuse, isn't it? <laughs> but did you notice as well, his plan to decrease the Hebrew babies born actually results in their increase? Because God rewards the Hebrew midwives by giving them children of their own. <coughs> then his next plan, every baby boy thrown in the Nile. Well, let me, let me put it to you like this. Strictly speaking, does Moses' mum disobey Pharaoh's command? <laughs> you see, he's outsmarted again, isn't he? She actually does throw her baby boy in the Nile. It just happens to be in a waterproof, camouflaged, tar- and pitch, humidity-proof. <laughs> but the thing that makes him look like a real goose... He wants to wipe out the Israelite baby boys. That's his big passion. He fears that one day they'll organise themselves and overthrow him. Forget this. Thanks to his own daughter, he's bringing up one of these Israelite boys under his own roof. He's been adopted into the family. It's one of his relatives. I, I take it he's in line somewhere to the throne. In fact, the very boy who will one day do the very thing that he fears so much, the saviour who will smash Pharaoh with his army and lead God's people away from Egypt. And can you picture it? Pharaohs bring him up in the lap of luxury in the palace, putting food on the table for him to grow big and strong, paying for his shoes and his clothes, you know, paying for his hex at Cairo University. <laughs> Moses' mother even gets put on the royal payroll, gets to come and live at the palace as well, to be paid to look after her own son. Pharaoh spends his days trying to wipe out the Israelites. And when he comes home at night and sits at the tea table, the kid there beside him that he passes the potatoes to is the leader God has chosen to destroy him. Let me say, it's just the beginning for how silly Pharaoh is going to look when he tries to put himself in the path of God's plan. But what do we learn from a story like this in the way that Exodus begins? It's a great story for the Israelites. But this side of Jesus, as we we stand this side of His resurrection and wait for the great resurrection that is to come, what does it say to you and me? Well, the big thing, I think, even from these first two chapters, has to be that God keeps His promises when he says he will do something, he comes through on that. His word can be trusted. Even when it seems unlikely. Even when life and circumstances and your situation might make you feel like you are forgotten. That he no longer cares. But it seems like God is having trouble, you know, keeping up with his obligations, that he's shot his mouth off, and now he can't actually do it. This passage wants, I think, powerfully to say to us, at the heart of who he is, he is a God who keeps his promises. (coughs) And you know, this side of Jesus, we of all people can see it in the way that Exodus points us forward to the great and final fulfilment of the promise to Abraham, that promise to bless all the world, the way God kept that promise in the coming of Jesus. You see, like the people of Israel, we too, the Bible says, are in slavery. But of a very different kind. Romans 5-6 describes us as slaves to sin. Prisoners who are held captive and destined for an eternal death. A judgment forever. There's something much worse than making bricks without straw. To an eternal judgment, Romans 5 tells us, that we are powerless, unable to free ourselves from. But an Israelite boy is born, who will break the chains of our slavery in the most surprising way, (coughs) by taking the judgment that we deserve and placing it upon himself instead. A liberator who will set us free by his death on a cross. So not just the family tree of Abraham, but from all the nations, God would gather together a people to be his, who would know his blessing in a new promised land, a new creation, a place that will never end. If you read the Old Testament, and especially the Psalms, the people of Israel, at the times when God seemed far away, when things seemed to be falling apart from them, and they wondered if God had forgotten them, they looked back to the Exodus, at the way God kept His promise and rescued them, even when it seemed so unlikely. And it gave them the courage to trust God again. They saw in Exodus his character, his track record of faithfulness, trustworthiness. And you see, for you and I, it is the same for us when we look back to the cross. As we look back and see the God who keeps his promises, even though it meant the giving of his own son, (coughs) You see, that is how committed God is to keeping his promise to you. That is how committed he is to loving you and having you as part of his people for all eternity. He wouldn't give up his son if it wasn't a promise he didn't intend to keep. A few months ago, I went and saw an older Christian lady in the hospital. The older, she's actually middle-aged but she was at the time dying of cancer. And she said to me, she said, you know, I've been a Christian all my life. I've always had my confidence in Jesus. But you know, for the first time, I'm not sure. Now that it comes down to the crunch, I have my doubts. What if there is nothing there? If Jesus is not there to meet me, before I had time to panic and even think about what I was going to say, she went on. But you know, when I think about the cross, that God loved me so much that he sent his son, when I think about how committed he is to me there, she died the next week. She looked into the future, trusting God and his promise, because she was looking back to the past. And saw a God in the business of keeping His promises, but you know it's not just about death. If you are a Christian here today, Jesus promises, live my way." It might be costly; it probably will be, but trust me, I promise that mine is the "Leave my way." It is the way to life in its fullness. It is life as it as it ought to be lived. I used to think that the best way you could do it, if you could work it out to actually do this, was to live life as a non-Christian. To live life for yourself and enjoy it and engineer a deathbed conversion at the last moment. Have the best of both worlds. But you know, that's not what Jesus promises. He says, here and now for all the costs, the things that are hard, the life to live, is the life lived in love for God. The life lived his way, being useful for his purposes. The life lived to love others as he has loved you. Now, why would you believe a promise like that? I mean, all around us is the evidence. I mean, the world whispers, it promises to us that we are missing out on life if we live it God's way. I mean, following what he says on sex. On relationships, oh, you're missing out big time. Giving your time to the work of His kingdom on campus, you're here in his lecture theatre when it's a beautiful sunny day out there on the lawn. Giving yourself to be to, to, to perhaps ridicule from other people at the university campus. Giving yourself and your time to being prepared and trained for a lifetime of serving God. And there's so many other things you could be doing. When the world tells you what matters is to look after yourself. And God says it's to seek first his kingdom. When the world tells us we are fools for having God's priorities. Who are you going to listen to? Whose promises, if you look at how you're living right now, at the choices you're making? Whose promises are you really trusting A couple of years ago, a girl that uh, my wife and I know quite well came to see us. She sat down in our living room with us to have a talk. We'd been pretty close with her for quite a while. Uh, she'd become a Christian a couple of years before that. But she'd come and visit us. She was there, we we're having this talk, because she was there to tell us that she was chucking Christianity in. She told us that she was scared, she was frightened of being alone. She comes from a family where they've always been pretty cold. She's not been someone who's had a lot of love and affection and she grew up. And when she became a Christian, the only boyfriend she ever had dumped her because of it. And she said she was frightened of always being on her own. There's a non-Christian boy who's invited her out. And she knows he's the kind of guy. She knows it will be the kind of relationship that will inevitably draw her away from following Jesus. But to be alone for her is so scary. She was chucking Christian again. Now can I ask you to think, what would you say to her if she was sitting in your lounge room? What would you tell her? Would you say, trust God and you'll never be lonely? Or that if she prays hard enough, God will give her a boyfriend. God doesn't promise those things. And don't you dare tell her something that God has not promised that he will do. But to just tell her, trust God. He loves you. It's easy to say. Susan, that girl, she decided in the end to press on as a Christian. And I think every day is hard for her. But the thing that makes the difference, the thing that keeps her pressing on, is to look back at the way God keeps his promises. To look to the cross and his great commitment to her there. Even when it feels sometimes like he has forgotten her, she can look back and see he's the God who keeps his promises. The God who says, trust me, live my way is the God she knows she can put her confidence in. The question for you and I is in the places in life where it's hard for you in the times that come for you when that is day are of crunch times whose promise are you going to trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many voices uh, that call out to us and promise us that this is the way to live life, that promise us all sorts of things. We pray that you would help us to see you clearly, the God who keeps your promises, the God whose promises are worth trusting in, that we would be people who would stake our lives, who would live our lives for you, and for your promises. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.